In this episode, we're going to cover Joseph of Egypt. Here we go. All right, so we are going to cover 2 Nephi chapters 3 through 5 in this episode. Uh, Remember that Lehi has just gone through kind of his philosophical treatise, and he started off that chapter 2 with a blessing over his older son, Jacob. I say older, older than Joseph. And now he transitions over to a blessing with Joseph. And as he does that, he brings in his ancestor, Joseph of Egypt, and talks about how Joseph had great prophecies, and he even prophesied directly of the Lehites and being in the Americas. And we can kind of extract a little bit of that from what we have in the end of Genesis. It's not very explicit, but we can kind of tie it in a little bit. But apparently what Lehi has here, and Nephi, in the brass plates, has very explicit, detailed prophecies from Joseph that we do not currently have in the Old Testament. Things that tie to Lehi directly. And this is at least, you know, there's there's some thought out there that, well, Nephi is just likening these things unto him and his group, like with Isaiah, and saying, okay, well, Isaiah talked about this covenant and about a remnant of Israel. Well, we're kind of a remnant of Israel. We could maybe be something like what Isaiah said. But this goes completely against that. Lehi says specifically that Joseph prophesied of his family and of them being a remnant of Israel. So keep that in mind because you'll hear that going forward as uh, an argument about what likening means. And so it's very explicit here what what Nephi and Lehi are, are, are saying here about them being prophesied of by Joseph of Egypt. Now, remember here that there's a real tie here with Joseph of Egypt all the way through the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Nephi acts like he is a Joseph of Egypt oftentimes, the younger son being uh, going through afflictions from his older brothers, uh, being bound or thrown into a pit. And of course, Lehi and Nephi are visionary men according to themselves and to Laman and Lemuel. And Joseph is a visionary man, very much so. And so there's a lot of tie-in here with Joseph of Egypt, and we get some new information about him. So as Lehi talks about his youngest son, Joseph, he transitions over to his ancestor, Joseph of Egypt. And here's what he says in verse 4, For behold, thou art the fruit of my loins, talking about his son, and I am a descendant of Joseph who was carried captive into Egypt. And great were the covenants of the Lord, which he made unto Joseph. So again, one of the greatest things about the Book of Mormon and about the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith is the dual message here that we get throughout the Book of Mormon, which is the doctrine of Christ and the new and everlasting covenant. That's what comes in. That's what is lost in the time of the apostles of Jesus Christ after they are killed off. 
we lose the higher covenant again. The, the Melchizedek priesthood, the ordinances of the temple, and of course the doctrine of Christ is changed pretty dramatically and in very important ways. And we lose an understanding of exaltation and the promised land, what they're talking about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Lehi is bringing that in here, talking about how great the covenants were that were made with Joseph. Well, of course, because here it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, right? They are the patriarchs of the new and everlasting covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of the Melchizedek priesthood, and of the oath and covenant of the priesthood, which is exaltation. And he says, Wherefore Joseph truly saw our day, and he obtained a promise of the Lord, that out of the fruit of his loins the Lord God would raise up a righteous branch unto the house of Israel. And then he says, Not the Messiah. Now why would he say not the Messiah here? Because the Messiah in Isaiah, right, is, is referred to as the branch. And so he's saying there's a righteous branch. He's not talking about the Messiah as the branch. He's talking about his branch off of the tree, right, which is the Lehites. So he has a very clear understanding through what is in the brass plates about the prophecies of his people, not to mention the many visions that he's had. And then he goes and he ties in a third Joseph, He says here, for Joseph truly testified, that's Joseph of Egypt, saying, a seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. And then in seven, and unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, that's the Lamanites, his brethren, which shall be of great worth unto them even to the bringing of them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Right? The new and everlasting covenant. So that is what is going to be coming to the descendants of Lehi. Not to mention the entire world. But again, talking about covenant, there's an important relationship here between Ephraim and Manasseh, the two brothers of the son, are the sons of Joseph. And so it's Ephraim of the Gentiles. Two, they're kind of identified both as Ephraim and the Gentiles that will be bringing this great and marvelous work to the descendants of Lehi. And by the way, it's their own work. It's the work of their prophets. It's the work of the Nephites who wrote the Book of Mormon. And so we should understand that what we're getting in the Book of Mormon is a restoration of the knowledge of these covenants because we don't have a full understanding of that in the Old Testament, nor do we have a full understanding of that in the Old or New Testament of the doctrine of Christ. And the Book of Mormon gives us that. And then we get here the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah, right? You'll hear this oftentimes also, that that doesn't really mean the Book of Mormon and the Bible. Well, it means several things, just like things in the temple that have certain symbolism can mean several things. But it certainly, one of these things, means the Book of Mormon and the Bible. That is exactly what is being referred to here with the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah. 
And Joseph Smith has said that specifically, that the Book of Mormon and the Bible are the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah. But there's some out there that say that's not the case. Look, it can mean several things, but it definitely means this. And he gives us some important information here. He says, Wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write. So the Nephites and the Jews, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines. Right? So we know, for example, that Manasseh, if we, we, if we look at, at least as a whole, depending on how much Lehite blood they have, I don't know. But if we look at Latin America as a whole, we can see that they have the Bible. Right? They have the Bible, but they don't have the Book of Mormon for the most part. So it's the Book of Mormon that then comes in, bringing in the higher covenants and the full doctrine of Christ that will help convince many of the truth and of the true doctrine and a knowledge of their fathers, who their ancestors are. That goes to Nephi and Laman and Lemuel and Lehi and then, of course, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then he says something here that we've gone over before. And out of weakness shall he shall be made strong. I think that this is just a really important concept to understand because you're, you're getting this with the prophets, right? And you'll see oftentimes that, you know, Moroni says this, Mormon says this, Moses, remember, we talk about him not being able to have, speak well. And the truth is, is we don't usually understand this, but actually Joseph Smith didn't speak great, especially early on. It was Sidney Rigdon that was the fiery sermon giver. But being weak is important to understand because what they're saying is, is that they're humble, right? If you have a connection here between the prophets and God, then the prophets are weak and that's good. Right, Because they are weak compared to the ideal, and, and they're weak compared to what they are preaching, even. And it puts them into that hierarchy that says, I submit to something much higher, to principles that are above me, to a God who is above me. And it says that out of weakness he shall be made strong. Well, how are you made strong from weakness? You're made strong by humbling yourself and adopting true principles of the gospel and having your eyes on the target, on the prize, which is putting Christ first in everything. And in 15, and his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. All right, this is Joseph of Egypt speaking. And he shall be like unto me for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord shall bring my people unto salvation. So, of course, Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Smith Sr., was also Joseph. So Lehi here is tying all of this together. His son Joseph, who he's speaking to, going back to Joseph of Egypt, and then saying that the seer will be named Joseph also. And then speaking of the Nephites who write the Book of Mormon, he says, And it shall be as if the fruit of thy loins had cried unto them from the dust, for I know their faith. And they shall cry from the dust, yea, even repentance unto their brethren, even after many generations have gone by them. So that's an important concept to understand. Over and over again, we have, we have a corruption of the gospel 
throughout time. And so new dispensations have to be started up with a new prophet at the head of that dispensation, like with Joseph Smith, like with Jesus, like with Moses and Abraham and Enoch and Adam, etc. And so the dust is a representation of what happens when you take that information, those covenants, a knowledge of the doctrine of Christ and of the higher covenant, and you bury it. Right? We know over time, with anything, we can look at the geological rock and, and see what has happened over hundreds of thousands, over millions of years. Right, There are things that we can say they cry out from the dust. There's a knowledge, an intelligence even, or something that sparks intelligence from the rock that we can see. And it's the same thing when we take things that are buried, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and many other things, and many things probably that we are, are still going to find that are buried under time or buried under dust. And so time covers these things up. And these are the times of apostasy. But eventually, they cry out from the dust, <clears throat> like the Book of Mormon. And then in 21, he says, Because of their faith, their words shall proceed forth out of my mouth, unto their brethren who are the fruit of thy loins. And the weakness of their words will I make strong in their faith unto the remembering of my covenant, which I made unto thy fathers. Again, it's the new and everlasting covenant that is being brought back. It's the fullness of the gospel. And that is manifest not only in the doctrine of the Book of Mormon that's found there and in the other books that we get in the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and from the prophets. But it's manifest in the temples where we have the fullness of the gospel there and the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood that are spotted around all of Latin America and all around the world. That is, in a sense, a remembering of my covenant that is being brought out to everybody. So then we go over to chapter 4 here and... As you note, a cold is not great for a podcaster. So bear with me through this. I appreciate it. Uh, and here Nephi then follows up on what Lehi has been saying about Joseph of Egypt and his prophecies. He says, he truly prophesied concerning all his seed, just like Lehi has. And the prophecies which he wrote, there are not many greater. Be great to have these, wouldn't it? And he prophesied concerning us. So here's an explicit call out to them being the fulfillment of prophecy from Joseph. He prophesied concerning us and our future generations, and they are written upon the plates of brass. So as they're reading through the plates of brass, they see that Joseph here has prophesied about them. They know that this is them. And it's not just from the plates of brass, that they get this. They get this from the visions that they've had. They know Joseph is talking about them. And then Lehi gathers everybody together and gives his final blessings, lets them know that if they obey the commandments that they will prosper, right, because they're following true principles that work. And then we're told in 12, he waxed old and it came to pass that he died and was buried. And then without their father, then... 
well, chaos starts to break loose here. And Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael, they kind of gang up on Nephi and Sam and Nephi's sisters and Jacob and Joseph and Zoram to the point that they try to seek Nephi's life and they have to leave. Again, right, when you have a group, there's going to be a separation of the wheat and the chaff. That's how it works. And where's the wheat going to go? The wheat's going to go to the wilderness. It's the wheat that gets kicked out. The chaff remains. And then we get the psalm of Nephi here, starting in verse 17. And he says, Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord, in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. We might say, well, how can this be if he's so righteous? Well, of course, the more righteous you are, the more you're going to notice the things that you're doing wrong, even if they're not grave. And I think we get an important principle here of faith and repentance, the first two principles of the gospel here in 19. He says, And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. So that's one of the hard things about repentance, right? Penitence or repentance is something that means pain. It's coming back through the pain. It comes from the Latin repere, which means to crawl, right, or to creep. And so it's basically submitting yourself down on the ground, through the dust, and crawling through the repentance process. It means that you humble yourself. And it's not easy, right? I, I, I've been through this, and, and, and I'm sure you've been through this, where you have to repent of something, and you try to put it off because you don't want to go through it. And yet going through it is what gets you to the other side because you don't want to go through the pain and so as long as you keep in a certain state of mind without repentance, then it doesn't hurt, right? It, you don't feel the pain until eventually something happens and you're confronted with it and reality sinks in. So repentance is not easy, but it's necessary. And he says here himself, I desire to rejoice, but my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, and this is the key of getting through that repentance, I know in whom I have trusted. Remember, trusted is faith. So if we have that faith in the Savior and his sacrifice, then we can get through that repentance process much easier. We understand that this has been paid for and paved the way for us previously. And then we can crawl through that. Down in 23, he says something interesting. Behold, he hath heard my cry by day, and he hath given me knowledge by visions in the nighttime. So again, when we see visions like this, we, what we're talking about, a lot of times what we're talking about is a dream. And we get different words on this. Sometimes it's a dream. Sometimes it's a vision. Is it at night while you're sleeping? Is it subconsciously? Is it consciously? Seems like a lot of this is given to you in dreams at night. And then I like this in 24. He says, And by day have I waxed bold in mighty prayer before him. So 
waxing something is to have the layers of the wax added on and on and on. And so the more we practice prayer, the better we are at it and the more bold that we can be with it. I've seen that in my life. When I am in a state of spirituality that allows me to be weak and humble myself and be in a position of prayer, then I'm made stronger and I'm bolder with that prayer. And I seem to be able to ask with more confidence. And he continues on down here in 32, and he says something that's kind of important. He says, may the gates of hell be shut continually before me because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. Now, it is traditional in Christianity to say that a broken heart and a contrite spirit were the sacrifice that were needed once the law of Moses was over. And we stopped with the sacrifice of animals. And so now the sacrifice is, we, what we put on the altar is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's true and not true. It's true that that's what we do. It's not true that it began at the end of the law of Moses. A broken heart and a contrite spirit, remember, we're here almost 600 years before the time Christ is born. So a broken heart and a contrite spirit have always been required. That did not begin after the death of Jesus or the end of the, of the law of Moses. And in fact, just a couple chapters before, we hear that again, and we see it in the Psalms. A broken heart and a contrite spirit in the Old Testament. And then I like this about the lower law and preparing the way, right? We've talked about procession in the past. He says here in 33, O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness. That's temple imagery right there, right? O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way? This is, again, we've talked about the stumbling blocks being put in the way of the procession that need to be removed in order to bring the Melchizedek priesthood through, the king. But that thou wouldest clear my way before me and hedge not up my way, but the ways of mine enemy. So a clear allusion to the lower law of clearing the way, prepare ye the way. And then in five here, just a couple of things. In verse 10, and we did observe to keep the commandments and the statutes and the commandments of the Lord in all things, according to the law of Moses. So even though they are knowledgeable about the higher law, and probably have many Melchizedek ordinances that they follow. In this time, they've been instructed to follow the law of Moses. And they will follow that all the way until Christ appears to them. And then just some contrast between the Nephites and the Lamanites now that they've split apart. We see that if you follow true principles and the gospel, then your civilization is stronger. Says in 15, and I did teach my people to build buildings and to work in all manner of wood and of iron and of copper and of brass and of steel and of gold and of silver and precious ores, which were in great abundance. And I, Nephi, did build a temple. So again, the center of all civilization anciently and really for us in our culture has always been the temple. That's where everything comes out of. You have architecture there. You have art you have science, you have navigation of the, and, and uh, astronomy of the stars in the way the temple is lined up. 
you have engineering, you have song, you have doctrine and religion. The temple is the hub of culture. And you can see him coupling here the temple with building up of the buildings and of kind of starting to build out their city of Nephi. And he says, I did construct it after the manner of the temple of Solomon. So he would have that in the brass plates, the, the, basically the blueprint there. And in 17, and it came to pass that I, Nephi, did cause my people to be industrious and to labor with their hands. So this is going to be contrasted with the Lamanites who are idle. So again, I mean, to me, faith, hope, and charity help you to not be idle. And so if you have that anchored in the doctrine of Christ, then those things are going to be abundant. And if you can keep that and spread that out in society, the more you can do that, the more successful your civilization is going to be, the more successful your family is going to be. And then real quick, just some confirmation about, again, the skins of blackness. It says that the Lamanites, they had become like unto a flint. It's dark, right? Dark stone. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. So all of a sudden, they become idle. They don't follow the doctrine of Christ. They don't have a greater faith. They don't have a greater hope, a greater charity. But now all of a sudden, they're, 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 they're now darker on their skin. Well, again, skin of blackness is a symbolic term. Right? It's their countenance is how you might look at that. Their countenance is darker. Again, there might be some physical manifestations of that in terms of maybe they're mixing with other people eventually, but it wouldn't have happened much yet at the time of Nephi. So this is more than likely a symbolic phrase. And we get kind of confirmation of this in verse 24. It says, And because of their cursing, shall the skin of blackness, which was upon them, they did become an idle people full of mischief and subtlety, and did seek in the wilderness for beasts of prey. So that has nothing to do with their skin color, right? It has to do with the principles that they are taught and repeat to their children. It's a way of being. It's a state of being. It's what your countenance is. And then the Lord says in 25, They shall be a scourge, talking about the Lamanites, unto thy seed to stir them up in remembrance of me. So... That's the way it works, right? We do not, it's hard for us to remember God unless we go through adversity. And so there's a plan here. And it's very possible that without the Lamanites, the Nephites would have never been able to follow through on writing the Book of Mormon and having the new and everlasting covenant as part of their theology and producing the Book of Mormon for us in the latter days who would return that to the descendants of Lehi. And so Lehi and Nephi used Joseph of Egypt and his prophecies to show how their children, their descendants, are a remnant of the house of Israel and that they had been prophesied of by their ancestor Joseph of Egypt. And we're told how through covenant these groups, Lamanites now and Nephites as separate peoples, the Ephraimites, so to speak, in the latter days, the Gentiles, and eventually all those of the Isles of the Sea everywhere in the world, how they will work together in the latter days to bring to everyone the knowledge of the new and everlasting covenant and of the true doctrine 
of Christ. I'll talk to you next time. Love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting one hundred dollars back and one hundred percent accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 3:31. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 